0: The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with Audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audio book if you sign up for a two week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk/slash Audible.
1: Hello and welcome to the business. I'm Adit Shakraborty. David Cameron wants it. George Osborne needs it, and business people and workers are crying out for it. So how's the government going to encourage growth? Vince Cable takes aim at short-termism in the city. Is this bad news for the spivs and gamblers? And we look at how global competition for the brightest minds is transforming higher education. This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio, we've got the Labour MP, Greg McClymont, Deputy City Editor, Jill Trainer, and Nils Pratley, The Guardian's Viewpoint columnist, Welcome to you all. This week saw the government try to move on from the doom and gloom of last week's spending review and try and get us to concentrate on growth. In his speech to the CBI this week, the Business Secretary, Vince Cable, announced what he called a long-term focus for corporate Britain to tackle spiralling executive pay and potentially destructive takeovers.
2: For those who say that by crimping the bank's style, by stopping them indulging in short-term speculation, that we're somehow damaging their shareholders' interest, I want to know how did short-termism work out for you? A glance at the share price graphs around 2008 suggests not very well. But having preached to you about long-termism, government has to practise what it preaches. And that's why the strategy at the core of our fiscal policy is about taking care of the long term,
0: even if it means pain in the short run.
2: Jill, you were at
1: CBI Monday. How did Sir Vince's comments go down?
0: I thought he was well received, actually. the, The audience, I think, was relieved not to get his sort of full on spivs and gamblers speech from the party conference again and be totally bashed. But he was pretty effective in the way he delivered his message, I felt. You know, he he got across pretty clearly that he thinks, you know, executive pay is too high. Bankers are paying themselves too much. He had a little jibe at his members of the coalition, which obviously cheered them all up a bit as well. And I think some of the messages he got across, you've got to remember the CBI conference, it's got an interesting people who sit there. It's not just the men running FTSE 100 companies, because they nearly are always men. But there are lots of people running smaller businesses, you know, who have got slightly different agendas to the men at the top. And so it was quite, I I think some of the stuff he said actually really resonated with them. Some of the ideas that competition reviews take too long, that the city feels very short-termism, and crucially that Banks need to lend more.
1: Nils, Vince was making this speech to kick off his consultation.
0: Mm. What do you think
1: of the questions that he's asking? Do they go far enough?
3: Well, I think there's some good. There are some good questions. There. I mean, I think the whole package. I think there's some there's some good stuff. There's some stuff that um, is just too ambitious to be delivered. And I think there's one burning issue that he totally ignored. I mean, the good stuff. Some of it, uh, Jules mentioned, like the competition. Questions. I mean, there should be more competition inquiries. And yes, shareholders should have a say or a binding vote on corporate pay. I think the stuff that's just not going to fly is uh, enhanced uh, voting rights for long term shareholders because I I just don't think it's in the culture of of the UK. I mean, I think I half buy the idea, but I just don't think people are going to stand up and support it or enough people. There'll just be too much resistance from within the UK. And the burning issue they totally ignored was the tax deductibility of interest. And I think you know, lots of people have looked at these corporate governance issues do come back to the fact that the tax system encourages companies to load up with with debt, pursue special dividend share buybacks, which are, in some ways, a sort of encourage a focus on short-termism. I think if you really wanted to get radical about this, you would look at the tax rules on interest. Even the IMF has been sort of hinting that that would be a good idea. So I, I assume that the Treasury's um, asserted its authority over
1: Vince and said stay away from tax. Greg McClellan, um we had 13 years of Labour government and now we have a new regime who are talking about city short-termism. Does that tell us that Labour didn't do enough?
4: I think it does. Aditya, I mean there's clearly a, a strong case for saying Labour did not get it right on the city. I mean the, the consequences of the financial crisis suggest that pretty clearly. I do, I mean I, if I pick up the point about culture and make it more broadly, I mean Vince is becoming sort of rhetorical outrider for a kind of critique of capitalism, which it's unclear that the coalition is uh, going to follow through on. And I mean, I very much enjoyed his speech at conference, which was a very interesting speech. The question is, can he deliver any of this within the the murky world of Whitehall and coalition government, I have to say that the jury is
1: still out. Vince Cable wasn't the only politician speaking at the CBI. There was also the leader of your own party. Does mm-hmm. the fact that Ed Miliband would turn up to CBI but not to TUC tell us that Labour's still going after the business vote at the expense of its own core vote? I don't
4: think so. I mean, I think that I, I suspect that Ed has met regularly with uh, leaders of the trade unions. Um, I suspect he's not met so often with uh, leaders of the business community. And Throughout the leadership campaign, Ed did have a very clear view about where Labour should be going on business, which was taking up uh, a point already made, the issue about the difference between small and medium-sized businesses and big business. They do have different interests, and I think Ed, a potentially fruitful line of approach for the Labour Party.
0: I actually thought Ed went down really well at the CBI, actually. And it was interesting, a few people I was speaking to while he was queuing up in the long queue for lunch were saying that, that he had been surprising. And it was interesting, he had a very chatty intro with Richard Lambert, who it turns out regularly has cups of tea with Ed Miliband and that's how he'd ended up speaking at the conference. And so, you know, to your point about business leaders, he, he, you know, he's probably trying to find his feet, but he did go down pretty well, I thought, at the conference, so... Probably finding, he's trying to find his feet everywhere, isn't he? Along what the he is it at this point, is, isn't it? Before well, you've got to play any cards well, has, or, or, or well, announce any policies. He's lucky because so. he doesn't need <clears> any policies, obviously, because he's, yeah. what, three years, four years away from a general election.
1: Is yeah. that right, Nils? I mean, is it the case that people in the business community sort of think of Edmund as a Nice chap, but not necessarily it's someone they need to seriously watch just yet? I don't think he's, he's really registered on their radar yet.
3: I mean, I think people were interested that he prevail they you know they enjoyed the, the you know the psycho drama that we all that we all enjoyed but I, do, I mean, in terms of policies I clearly he is not the red head of caricature but I don't think businessmen have a clear idea of what Ed Miliband's policies for business are it's an opportunity for him
0: I mean yesterday he spelt out again that he's this idea you know don't cut too deep have some flexibility yeah. Yeah. I mean that's the policy that we know a lot about now from Labour but it has to be true the audience probably didn't come away knowing much more than the sort of broad picture. The
3: broad picture, because they're not even spelled that out yet, have they? Precisely, w- what would be the appropriate period to, to eliminate the structural deficit? I, you know, have they come to a decision on that, Greg? Uh, I think it's. I mean, in the midst of developing policy, <laughs> me. <laughs> which I, I think
4: is, and you know, when you've only been in opposition for six months. I yeah. think it's fair enough yeah. um, to spend some time, you know, assessing the things that you got right in government and assessing the things that you got wrong. Of course, the, the Conservatives have, and the Lib Dems, I guess, fairly effectively so far demanded that, you know, a question is met with a question, what yeah. would you do? Yeah. But, I mean, I'm constitutionally, that's pretty dubious. And I think it's also unfair at, at this stage, um, you know, to demand that of the opposition. But I do think Ed is on to something with, you know, hammering away and developing policy on the basis that small and medium-sized te- businesses have different interests. And so I always find it interesting when... You know, you listen to small and medium-sized businesses speak about the economy. Uh, I sometimes think that their own experiences of the interaction between the public and private sector aren't always reflected in you know the ideology they they tend to cleave to. And you know, there's no doubt a complicated uh, you know cultural reason for that that we probably don't want to get into. There is, a, I think, there's a door ajar there, and it's something we have to you know push on with.
1: So you're accusing small and medium-sized businesses of false consciousness, are you
4: great?
1: <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that for a moment. <laughs> well, the issue of foreign takeovers through leveraged buyouts has been in the spotlight with the ongoing saga at Liverpool Football Club. But it was this deal that angered many people in Britain.
3: One of Britain's best-known companies, the chocolate maker Cadbury, has approved a takeover bid from the American food giant Kraft – Cadbury's board is recommending that shareholders accept Kraft's latest offer, which values the company at £11.5 billion.
0: What's going on at the Cadbury
3: Bournville factory is not right for the factory, for the area, for the residents or for the whole economy. Or it's whether you want to look at things Long term. And we've looked at craft, what type of company they are, what they've done to the people that they employ in America, what they've done to the people they employ in Europe. And we believe that in the long term, craft will not be good for this factory or this area.
1: Nils, was the craft takeover of Cadbury a good long term deal? Emphasis on long term. It, no, it was
3: it was a bad long-term deal. Um, it was a bad short-term deal as well because what you had was it was a, a badly managed, poorly performing company, Kraft, taking over a, a well-managed company, Cadbury, that had sort of set out a reasonable future and was growing strongly. I mean, I think Buffett, as a Warren Buffett, as a shareholder in Kraft, sort of protested loudly about about Kraft itself doing the deal, and the the Kraft management managed to sort of ignore him and um, get it done anyway. The broader questions it raises, obviously, are about city short-termism, and I think from that point of view, it, it, it was a bad deal because I mean shareholders were voting to accept some cash when I think they should have held out for a lot more money. You know, if they were going to surrender to craft, the, the price they sold at was was too cheap, and I think um, that partly reflects the makeup of the Cadbury shareholder register. You know, it was it was half of it was American to start with, and then it was pretty much invaded by hedge funds, quickly gobbled up twenty percent. Mm. So. You know, almost from the beginning, you know, Kraft was going to win. It also sort of abused the rules in terms of sort of stretching out the timetable to shake out as many long-term holders as it could. Because if you're a long-term shareholder, it's quite hard to maintain that position for a very long time. You know, the share price is rising, and you've got a sort of top slice to maintain your weighting in the index and all that sort of stuff. So Kraft knew the game; it was well advised, smartly advised. They abused the system, but you know, fundamentally, the wrong side won. Jill, if the Cadbury
1: deal were happening now, what odds would you give on Vince Cable stopping it?
0: He's got no powers to stop it, as it stands. There is a public interest test, but it doesn't mm. count chocolate. chocolate yeah. Mandelson famously introduced a new public interest test during the banking crisis so he could let Lloyd's rescue age, <laughs> boss. Great deal, that was. <laughs> and obviously there's public interest on defence and such things. But as far as I'm aware, he'd have to legislate. He'd have to get himself new powers, emergency powers to stop something on the grounds that it's a chocolate maker being taken over. You know, there's an interesting graph in the consultation paper that Vince published this week in which it it, it sort of shows how foreign investment in British companies has changed since the 1960s, which is when we got our first takeover code. And it begins as this sort of tooty little dot and then expands to about, you know, sort of 40% or whatever it is now across the FTSE 100. And um, you sort of feel that Vince is sort of on a losing battle, really. I mean, it strikes me that the most interesting thing he's got in his proposals is this idea that if you're the company that's doing the taking over, you're the aggressor, that your shareholders should get a vote. Mm. And it strikes me that that's, you know, maybe that's not such a bad idea. But, you know, I think some of the other ideas, particularly the point Niels is making about this idea that you give long-term shareholders sort of extra rights, it feels like something that the French enjoy, you know, rather than...
1: Why is that a bad thing?
0: Well, it's just, if you read the consultation paper Vince has put out, I think it shows that he's aware of the history in this country. And like history or not, you know, the British tend to be quite fond of the sort of precedents they've sent over the over the years and it contrasts the UK's pride it gives shareholders in running companies with what goes in the US where in fact shareholders have got far less powers and I don't know it sort of feels less likely to happen but you know let's wait and see we've got you know 12 weeks of consultation and and then another 12 weeks to think about it and we'll know by the end of April
3: just so. on a point of history there was I mean in the midst of that Cadbury craft deal I did sort of dig out a uh from 1988 Lord Young that the, the hardly a yeah, yeah <laughs> wing radical did um Basically, block a bid for Ran- Rankhovers McDougall, the bread maker, in 1988, virtually on public interest grounds. And, but the uh, rules have changed since then. The rules have then, because changed Labour
0: since took there. ministerial decisions out of takeovers.
1: All this talk of history makes me turn to Professor MacLiamont. <laughs> I, I was not a professor. <laughs> <laughs> I'd see my ex-colleagues would laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what you, saw, what you heard there between Jill and Nils was an absolutely excellent debate about whether Britain is just a different kind of capitalism to what we see in the continent and whether we are just a bit more gunslinging, cowboyish than people in France and Germany. And therefore, whether we can actually reform the way we do stuff in the city. What do you think?
4: Uh, I mean, we weren't always this way. I mean, obviously, this this form of capitalism really emerged in the 1980s. I mean, it's not as long running as say the the American kind of gunslinging capitalism. Even allowing for FDR and Glass-Steagall and so on. I mean, I think cultures are very difficult to change, but it needs to start with talking about it. You need to talk about the changes you'd like to see. I mean, I guess one question, going back to Joe's point about whether cable would have intervened, and I think you're right about that, is would the, would the public reaction have been any different to what it was those months ago? I mean, I guess if capitalism as it's currently constituted stops working for majority of people, that's the point at which you will see the pressure from below and the changes you need. Are we in that sort of moment? Well, not yet,
1: but we could be. OK, a couple of hypotheticals for you. If the Cadbury's deal were happening now, what do you think Ed Miliband would say about it? I don't know
4: what he would say. I know what I would say. Which is? Which is a bad deal for Britain. And the notion that you can't have a national interest in takers of this kind seems to me the worst kind of uh, you know free market nonsense. So you'd want to stop it, would you? I
1: yes. Another hypothetical, if you heard, for instance, that Rupert Murdoch wanted to buy up all of B Sky B and you thought there was a problem there with competition, would you be minded to stop that? Of course. Are we going to say that Labour are going to be coming out against the B Deal?
4: Well, I'm only a, I'm only a humble backbencher, so I mean, I don't have any, any influence. You're part of the new generation. Any, any hearing influence about? whatsoever in um, what the, the leader
1: uh, decides to do? But I can only speak for myself. Okay. Well, we got the latest vital signs for the UK economy on Tuesday with the release of the GDP report for the third quarter. The economy grew by 0.8, percent faster than expected. So let's turn to what the government had to say on growth at the CBI. It boiled down to creating the right framework for enterprise and investment, supporting those industries where Britain has an advantage and using the government's power and muscle to make it easier for new companies to flourish. Nils, convinced?
3: Um, not really. I mean, I think Cameron's he's delivering a very mixed message, isn't he? I mean, on the one hand, he's saying he's sort of relentlessly focused on this issue of growth. On the other hand, he's saying it's nothing to do with government; it's up to business. And it's sort of you can't really have it both ways. Yes, you can throw a bit of money at infrastructure projects and these centres of uh, of excellence and so on, but I don't think there is a growth strategy. The growth strategy is to sort of clear out the public sector and hope that the private sector sort of whooshes into the gap. I'm deeply skeptical that's uh, going to happen, and I'm also uh, sceptical about whether the Mervyn King cavalry in the form of quantitative, more quantitative easing will, will do will do the job. So I don't think it is fleshed out and I think they, they may be forced by events to flesh it out rather further.
0: It doesn't feel like the 80s, does it, where you know we kind of got out of recession because the private sector decided it could grow and started hiring people and it had such a chumping their cause. So, I mean, it, it feels different somehow. In, in the CBI room yesterday, it was clear that people were talking about the fact that they were prepared to hire and that they were going to Bring on new jobs, but whether that's going to be enough to replace the half a million public sector roles that the government is admitting are going to go is is another story altogether. It's a very difficult story to tell. You know, you look at the GDP data that's come out; it's it's driven by construction, and. The reason the forecasts were wrong seemed to be that the city had thought the construction wouldn't grow as quickly as it has. Yeah, yeah. You know, is construction proper GDP growth? I mean, you know, who am I to suggest that one bit of the economy isn't better than the other given that I specialise in <laughs> banking? But, um, but, you know, it does feel as if construction is, you know, it's probably just another bubble and it's a bit of luck that's going on because interest rates are low and there's an appetite for property. I mean, you know, what do I know, really? But it strikes me as it's not the manufacturing revival that we've heard Vince talk about.
4: The Conservative Lib Dem plan clearly is a gamble. I mean, nobody knows whether it will work. In that sense, it is a gamble. My own view on it personally is that it's a gamble. There's no evidence to suggest that what they're doing will work. And in those circumstances, adopting a political economy which attacks the most vulnerable in society is wrong. I mean, if we had that, if it was a science and we knew this this would work, then you might say, well... The, the poorest and the most vulnerable bear the burden in the short term and in, in the long run we all do better. But of course, you know, this is not science, it's politics. Yeah. In that sense, it's
1: it's pretty uh, damaging and unpleasant. But Greg, I mean, efficiency isn't necessarily the same as equality. And we have had trickle-down economics before. And in the short term, maybe in a, over longer term, it does make economies grow fast. It just means that the proceeds of growth don't get shared very fairly, that's all.
4: That that's a, that's a, a neoliberal position. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we know that the proportion of wages, which um, wages to GDP is, has declined significantly since the seventies. And if you know, if America sneezes, we catch a cold. It's coming the same way fast. I mean, we know in America, the you know, the Tea Party and so on are emerging out of a context in which you know your average American has not seen a you know a wage rise in a decade, and that's a real problem in the British context as well. And we know from the financial crisis that. Uh, trickle down may work in the short term, but in the long term is
1: extremely dangerous. Jill, where does all of this go? I mean, what's happened to this white paper on growth that Vince Cable's been promising us?
0: Well, the consultation's closed and and we're waiting for him to come and tell us what he's going to do. I mean, clearly the big decisions that the banking industry, for instance, are waiting on is, is he going to put net lending targets across the entire industry? Is he going to do lending targets at all, in fact? You know, you have to remember the coalition agreement sets out this idea that there will be net lending targets. I don't know what they're going to do because they seem to be buying in this argument from the banks that actually we can check as much money as we want at these small businesses but there's not enough demand and clearly they do have to make some decisions about is growth going to come that way can they provide other forms of finance to small businesses to grow now the banking industry has tried to come up with its own answers preempt the findings of that paper and that work that cable's done by coming up with this 1.5 billion pound growth fund which actually got criticized very heavily from the floor of the cbi conference yesterday for targeting the wrong type of small business you know It's not about small businesses, it's about quite big businesses, actually. So um, we don't know where we are. We're we're waiting for the answers.
1: And finally, how are global universities changing the world? Every year, almost three million students leave their home countries to study. That's 40% more than in 1999. New universities in China, India and Saudi Arabia are competing with the likes of Harvard and Oxford for faculty staff, students and research status. Ben Woldaski argues in his new book, The Great Brain Race, that this scholarly marketplace is creating a new global meritocracy, where the spread of knowledge benefits everyone, both educationally and
2: economically. I think of a global university. I think it's really a university that's participating in this very vibrant academic marketplace that's really sprung up in recent years and it's growing very quickly. What does it look like? I think it takes many forms. I mean, a lot of uh, the book is about research universities and the way in which the sort of Western research model in the UK to some extent and to a very large extent in the United States, which of course has become a magnet for students from around the world and is very much the model that other countries are trying to imitate. One could talk about a, a global university as that sort of research university model. But I would also say that there, there are many universities that perhaps aren't going to compete in that league, but who nevertheless are forming partnerships overseas and doing all sorts of things.
1: Okay, let's have a concrete example. Tell me about New York University in Abu Dhabi.
2: Well, New York University is headed by John Sexton, who's a very ambitious entrepreneurial guy. And New York University, in uh, September of this year, opened up a full-fledged liberal arts undergraduate campus in Abu Dhabi, uh, with about a thousand students from all over the world, a highly selective admissions process, and the key distinction is that uh, John Sexton hates it if you call it a branch campus because, in fact, it's a place where you can start off and get a full bachelor's degree from NYU without leaving Abu Dhabi. And who teaches you? It's a mixture. They've worked very hard to get New York University faculty over there because as the then provost told me when I was visiting a couple of years ago, you know, the faculty is the university. But of course, it's challenging to get people over there, certainly for long-term gigs. So they also will use, you know, regional folks that they hire who they feel meet their standard.
1: You see, what I find fascinating about your book is it describes an aspect of globalization really and we're used to globalization when it comes to trainers or or factories and that sort of thing but what you're talking about here is kind of the globalization of the intelligentsia.
2: Well that's right and I, I, mean, I use the term, I used to use the free trade metaphor in the book which you know, of course doesn't make everybody happy but I'm a, I'm a free trader and I think the benefits are significant on, on all sides uh, even, even though there may be some dislocations and some winners and losers yeah, I use the term free trade in minds, and I think we're we're seeing the globalization that we hear so much about in in the business and in, in culture and arts has absolutely come to the the, the the campus. And the academics
1: you talk to, I can't imagine they're all uniformly delighted at this trend.
2: No, I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, there's a guy at NYU, Andrew Ross, I believe, who is quite critical of of their efforts. And I mean, he there was an article in the New York Magazine that was called the Emir of NYU and about John Sexton. So look, I mean, some people are, are cynical about it, but and, you know, again, people worry, uh, you know, the same reasons people worry about globalization in all kinds of ways. People worry about the commodification of knowledge. That's the sort of uh, comment you, you hear. But I also think, I mean, a, a number of faculty are embracing this. I think because they think it's exciting and they think that, you know, if you look at sort of cross-national research collaboration, for example, it's boomed in the last decade or two. Um, and I spoke at the American Chemical Society recently, 30% of their submissions are now from China, uh, which is way up from just just 10 years ago. So it's a very different world. But what happens in this kind of globalization of our universities, what happens to having uh, academics who are part of the community? I don't think that's going to change uh, significantly. I mean, we're not talking about a world. Yes, we may see some new forms. I mean, Sexton, again, I don't have to focus on him too much, but he talks about the notion of a global network university, where you might not have that same sense of place. You might start your studies in Shanghai and finish up in Abu Dhabi. You know, Many universities, of course, are characterized by a strong sense of, of place. I think we're just going to have greater diversity. I mean, some places will be more global than others, and one can define global in different ways. You know, Yale University, its president, uh, Rick Levin, they do have a, a new initiative uh, they're hoping to do in Singapore. But they try and bring in a lot of international students. It's gone from maybe 1 in 30 to 1 in 10. They have int- very interesting research collaborations in China. So they're global in a somewhat different way that I think does not take away from their sense of connection to New Haven. But, Ben,
1: I mean, you, you're doing a manful job of putting the sort of the sunny side of, of, of this. But... If I were to think about globalisation as it affects British universities, one aspect might be the way that a university like Manchester now pays huge amounts of money for foreign economists to come over and deliver four keynote lectures, and that's the end of their, their association with Manchester University. And yet Manchester can say, well, we had Joe Stiglitz here as a visiting professor. I mean, that, that doesn't seem to me a particularly deep uh, relationship between Joe Stiglitz and Manchester University?
2: No, I, I suppose not, but you know, universities do all kinds of foolish things. They spend a lot of money on domestic speakers uh, that perhaps they shouldn't. They could put it into undergraduate education. You know, there are trade-offs, there are priorities. You could also say if you're a place that really cares about the exchange of ideas and about you know, finding the best people to talk about fascinating topics, you can make the case for doing that sort of thing. But I don't view that sort of invitation as intrinsic to the phenomena that I'm talking about. I think that I'm much more interested in this notion that People can can move around the world and slowly but surely, I mean, this is an incremental process, can get ahead based on what they know rather than who they are, where they come from, what their family background is.
1: You do um, a great job of describing how American academics looked at what was going in German universities and brought that model back home. Are you not a bit worried that actually all we end up with at the end of this great globalisation trend is kind of universities looking a bit like each other in, in various degrees? Why should a university in, I don't know, Bihar India look anything like one in Boston, America?
2: I guess quickly, you know, of course, the United States has a hugely varied system of higher education. We have some excellent places, and we have meritocracy, and we have mediocrity. We have lots of second and third-rate universities. We have community colleges that are open-entry for for a couple of years after high school. We have non-selective state universities. So I would say, you know, an Indian university has many models to choose from. At the high end, if you're trying to produce the sort of breakthroughs in in science, in, in engineering, and in fields that are often closely connected to innovation and to economic growth in a very direct sense, that's the model that many places want to copy. That's what China is after. Uh, and India, sadly, has a, a really terribly inadequate university system, both in terms of mass access and in terms of high quality, beyond a handful of places like the Indian Institutes of Technology. But frankly, it's, it's not a surprise that, you know, that India aspires to have some of those great universities because it would be tremendously useful in its economic growth. That was Ben
1: wildaski and his book, The Great Brain Race, How Global Universities Are Shaping the World, is out now. That's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Greg McClymont, Niels Pratley and Jill Trainer. The producer of this podcast was Ian Chambers. My name's Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening.
0: Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook head to guardian.co.uk slash audible. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.